August 6, 1966. A young man recently paroled from many burglaries is back on the streets of Texas. But on this night, he's looking for more than just a break-in. After murdering three teens, he'd go to prison and sit on death row only to be set free and kill again and again and again. He had a few monikers, the broomstick killer, the broomstick murderer, but really he was just evil personified. This is the story of Kenneth McDuff, free to kill. Hey y'all, I'm Chris Calvert. And I'm her husband, Rob Potter. Welcome to Hitch to Homicide. For better or worse. Till death do us part. everybody yes welcome 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 and for our hungarian friends okay this is a tough one very nice that was great sweetheart <laughs> thanks yeah i'm sure the people from hungary are going what in the world did he just say what was that <laughs> face palm <laughs> well wherever you're listening be sure to like rate and review yep we appreciate all your comments, emails, and reviews. And if you want more than just once a week crime with us, <laughs> you can join the in-laws and outlaws. It's our closed Facebook group. Couple yep. questions answered. You're in. It's a fun group. Yes, it is. And before we go any further, we have to wish our dog, Scotty, the little man, a happy birthday. Happy birthday to Scotty, yes. our little rescue. Yep, he's four years old he's now. four years old today. <laughs> I see a trip to a pet store in his immediate future after we finish recording this. Yep, he gets to pick out his own present. Picks out his own toy every year. He's a good boy. He is a good boy. Well, speaking of bad boys, Uh-oh. this is a crazy case. Sad, so hard to believe in so many aspects. This is falling through the cracks in the worst case scenario. Oh. Before we get started, let me thank some sources Murderpedia, Wikipedia, Texas Monthly, Crime Museum, True Crime Detective, The Cleburne Times Review, The Fort Worth Star-Telegram, and The Big Book of Serial Killers. My favorite. It's Rob's favorite. (laughs) It's a fan favorite. I've had people text me and email me asking for a link. I always put a link in the show notes to that book. And there's volumes one and two. Cool. All right. Well, you ready? I am. All right. Let's do this. Kenneth Allen McDuff was born on March 21st, 1946 in Rosebud, Texas. Rosebud. What a great name. Rosebud. His friends are deep in the heart, deep in the heart of (laughs) Texas. Texas. (laughs) Thank you, Pee Wee. Thank you, Pee Wee Herman. His parents are J.A. and Addie McDuff. Kenneth's dad is a cement finisher who made a ton of money during the building boom in the late 70s and early 80s. Kenneth had a brother and four sisters. And according to more than one source, they weren't the friendliest bunch, the McDuffs. (laughs) Really? No. They worked hard. They were regularly seen at the Assembly of God Church. Yeah. Kenneth's mom, Addie, was a big woman, domineering. She also ran what they called a washateria. So a laundromat, you think that's what a laundromat is? That's what I would call a laundromat. Yeah. A laundromat with food? I don't I don't know. (laughs) I I don't know what a washateria is. Somebody's gonna email me or they're gonna comment and tell me that I'm an idiot someplace (laughs) along the way. I think it's a laundromat. I think it's a laundromat with food. I don't think there's food. That's like beer. You know, they in college, they had the laundromats where it was like suds yeah. and suds. You could drink beer and do your laundry at the same time. Soap and suds. That's right. But this washateria is across the street from their house, just off Main Street. Now, his parents were very dedicated to their kids, but I read that Kenneth might have been treated a little spe- more special than the rest. Why? I don't know. I, he's the youngest boy 
Maybe that's it. Baby of the family. Maybe. <laughs> I don't think he is the baby, but I think he's second to last. But I think he's treated like he's the baby. You and I were baby of the families. I am. We are the babies. <laughs> we are. Both of us. <laughs> Addie McDuff and her three eldest daughters lavished attention on Kenneth and treated him as though he were, this is what I read, a young god. Oh, really? Somehow above the rules that, like, kept other children in line. All right. And, as I said, Kenneth had a younger sister, so he was second in line, but he was regarded as the baby of the family. Okay. Now, his classmates remember that Kenneth always had money in his pocket, and he usually wore new clothes. When he was older, his mother bought him a motorcycle that was probably the loudest machine in Rosebud, Texas. <laughs> wow. Had to be a Harley. Yeah, exactly. Potato, 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 potato. Kenneth's father was a tight-lipped man who went about his business and left family matters to Addie. Hmm. Although apparently he did not share her unwavering devotion okay. to Kenneth. Really? Nope. But in the beginning, Kenneth wasn't the problem. It was his older brother, Lonnie, a guy who pulled a knife in the late 50s on his Rosebud, Texas school principal, D.L. Mayo. Wow. Lonnie had a speech impediment, and he liked to call himself Rough Tough Lonnie McDuff. <laughs> and apparently, this was in one of the articles, when he said it, it was Wuff Tough Lonnie McDuff. <laughs> Was Barbara Walters his mother? Baba Wawa. That's right. <laughs> Lonnie would eventually be shot to death by the ex-husband of a woman he was sleeping with. Oops. So that's the end. That's how Lonnie meets his baker. Important safety tip. Don't sleep with another man's wife. There you go. Yeah. I know. But as a kid, Kenneth wasn't very good at following orders or rules. And at school, if anything happened, Kenneth was completely innocent. <laughs> Addie was like one of the very first lawnmower parents. Like she would mow down anything <laughs> that was in front of Kenneth. Sure. She would come into the school like in a huff after Kenneth would get in trouble. And old Addie would be packing heat. Wow. Pistol packing mama. That's what the teachers called her. Wow. Pistol packing mama McDuff. And most of the teachers were just out and out scared shitless of this woman. <laughs> I wonder why. Yeah, I wonder why. She's so she's very domineering and she's carrying she's packing heat carrying a gun and she thinks her son can do no wrong. Wow. Now many people in Rosebud had heard the story about Addie McDuff flagging down a school bus with her pistol. <laughs> Then giving the driver who had thrown her son off the bus the previous day for fighting a tongue lashing. Wow. Now, the story may or may not be true, but this is the kind of intimidation that the McDuffs cast over this very small town. Okay. Now, while in school, Kenneth was a bully, to no one's surprise. And he liked to intimidate teachers, but he wasn't very smart. Like, if brains were leather, he wouldn't have enough to saddle a June bug. <laughs> There's a new one. That's not a new one. It's just a new one today. Okay. <laughs> Kenneth had an IQ of 92. Okay. He was also known to have a maniacal laugh. <laughs> Quote, People who grew up in Rosebud with Kenneth McDuff recall with enormous satisfaction that day in the eighth grade when Kenneth challenged Tommy Salmon to meet him after school. Tommy was one of the most popular boys in school, a good athlete, modest, unassuming, not easily provoked. Kenneth had been trying to goad him into a fight. He finally succeeded one day between classes, bumping against Salmon in the hallway and calling him a, quote, chicken shit in front of his friends. <laughs> wow. This according to a friend, Ellen Roberts. Quote, Kenneth was so hated that when word got around he was going to fight Tommy Salmon after school down by the drainage ditch, my whole class talked of nothing else. The fight, such as it was, lasted only a few minutes. Though Kenneth was larger than Salmon or almost anyone else in the school, Salmon easily overpowered him. Kenneth was big, but he wasn't strong. And Salmon got him in a headlock and Macduff bit him. Oh. And the incident went down in Rosebud history as the day 
Tommy Salmon liberated the town, or at least the eighth grade, <laughs> yeah. from the bully Kenneth McDuff. That's awesome. <laughs> and Kenneth McDuff never bothered Salmon or anyone else in his class after that. And a few months later... He quit school for good and went to work for his father. It kind of reminds me when Ralphie beat up the bully in Christmas Story. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, he's goading him into this fight, and finally this kid just takes him out. Yep. So, you know, and everybody cheered. <laughs> <laughs> so Kenneth's only friend is his brother, Lonnie. And we know Lonnie's no good either. Mm-hmm. In the fall of 1964, when Kenneth was just 17, he began breaking into buildings and prowling for sex. Mm. He tells his brother Lonnie that he had raped a woman, cut her throat, and left her in a ditch, to which his brother told him, go to bed, forget about it, forget about it, just oh go God. to bed. Wow, was he serious? He was He was deadly serious. Wow. That's called foreshadowing. Uh-oh. I can only use my right hand because I have a dog in my other hand. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) It was good even one-handed. All right. (laughs) But not long after he starts breaking and entering, he's sent to prison for 12 counts of burglary and attempted burglary that spanned three counties in Texas. He got 12 sentences of four years each that were meant to be served concurrently. He's released on parole in December of 1965 when I was born. <laughs> and this is going to be a problem, a problem because he'd robbed a dozen or more homes and according to him, raped and murdered a woman, but he's out of prison so fast. Wow. And that only gives him this, this sense of power that no matter what I do, I'm going to be able to get away with this. Yeah. Nobody can hold me. Yeah. yeah. Plus being in prison gave him a chance to grow up. He got bigger and he learned how to manipulate those who were afraid of him or even those that were his compadres. Uh-oh. He would end up back in prison after a fight, but he wouldn't stay there long. And by 1966, Kenneth had a new friend and compadre he liked to boss around. His name was Roy Dale Green. Okay. Now, Roy Dale lived with his mama in Marlin, Texas. I don't know if he goes by both names, but I'm going to call him by both names because it's Texas. Roy Dale. Roy Dale. He lives with his mom and Marlon, and he works for Kenneth's dad. He's a couple years younger than Kenneth, and he loved hearing all about Kenneth's tales of debauchery. Mm. And Kenneth bragged that he had raped and strangled several women in his lifetime. Kenneth once told Roy Dale, quote, killing a woman's like killing a chicken. They both squawk, end quote. She was. Yeah. Wow. Roy Dale wasn't certain that he believed that Kenneth was telling the truth. Yeah. That is, until the evening of August 6th, 1966. Okay. Kenneth and Roy Dale are driving around that night after a hard day's work pouring concrete. They clean up and they go out to Fort Worth in a new Dodge Charger that Addie gave Kenneth when he got out of prison. What? We're going to call her Addie the Enabler. Oh, my God. Congratulations, you're free. Here's your brand new car. (laughs) Which has made me think of the people who joke. They're like waiting in the airport and they're holding the sign, welcome home from prison, that kind of thing. Yeah. These are the things our family would do, by the way. (laughs) But we're going to call her Addie the Enabler. Okay. Roy Dale is only 18. He's never even been Fort Worth, Texas. Kenneth is 20 and knows this area. He also knows some girls around there. And these two hang out with some girls in Eveman, which is a small town that is just south of Fort Worth. They're drinking and carousing. And Kenneth is chatting up a girl that he knows from church. (laughs) And after this, he tells Roy Dale, quote, I need to find a woman. So he takes this girl home. And then he sees a pretty teenage girl in a red and white striped blouse and Daisy Dukes cut off jeans. Mm -hmm. She's near a baseball field and she's talking to two boys in a 1957 Ford. Okay. Now, he doesn't know these people or this girl. It's 16-year-old Edna Louise Sullivan. She goes by Louise. Her boyfriend is 17-year-old Robert Hugh Brand. And with them is Robert's cousin, 15-year-old Mark Dunham who was visiting from California. Okay. It's 10 p.m., and they just returned from the Southside Drive-In Theater in Fort Worth. 
all the summer days and the drive-in theater. <laughs> we had a drive-in theater in our hometown. It's the best. Yeah. It's sad that so many kids have never been to a drive-in theater. And if you've never experienced the smell of exhaust in the back of a closed trunk, you've never lived. <laughs> That's called foreshadowing. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's how we snuck into the drive-in theater. Well, <laughs> trunks are called foreshadowing in this story. Oh, really? Yeah, that's oh. why I said that. Oh. Yeah. All right. So these three, after they go to the drive-in, these three, Louise, Robert, and Mark, they go to Louise's friend's house, Rhonda Chamberlain. And Louise tells Rhonda... We're going to go drive around for a little bit, and then I'll be back because I'm spending the night there. She was spending the night with her. Okay. And Louise, let's talk a little bit about her. All right. She was born on July 23rd, 1950 in Johnson County, Texas. Her parents are Louis Ray and Edna Ruth Sullivan, which made me think Edna Louise, the dad's name is Louis, the mom's first name is Edna. Oh, well, that's kind of like my name. My mom's name was Norma Jean, and my dad's name was Robert. And my dad did not want a junior, so they compromised and named me Robert Jean. You don't look like a Jean at all. I know. I know. (laughs) I actually wanted my dad's middle name, Emerson. I thought that was a cool name. Which is also a very cool name. I agree. Anyway, yet I digress. Sorry. Well, Louise was a beautiful and popular student at Everman High School. She volunteered to work on Sundays in the daycare center of her church. Louise's boyfriend is Robert Brand. He lived with his parents in Alvarado, Texas, and was just a high school student who loved to play the guitar. Mm. And visiting Robert again is his cousin, Marcus Dunham, Mark. He'd been visiting his grandmother in Fort Worth, and Mark liked to play the drums. So a couple of musicians, honey. Yeah, I have a, actually have a friend named Mark Dunham. <laughs> not the same guy, but I have a friend named Mark Dunham. No, I can guarantee it's not the same guy. <laughs> Hi, Mark. <laughs> Now, Roy Dale is still with Kenneth, and he watches as Kenneth pulls up to these three kids. He gets a thirty-eight caliber pistol from under his car seat, and he walks to them, gun in hand. Ooh. Kenneth demands that the guys give them their wallets. Give me your wallets. Right. Then he puts all three of them into the trunk of the car. Now, after this, he tells Roy Dale, quote, They got a good look at my face. I'll have to kill them, end mm. quote. Wow. Kenneth drives their car with Louise, Robert, and Mark in the trunk. And Roy Dale follows driving Kenneth's new Charger. And Roy Dale is thinking, Kenneth's joking that he's going to kill these three kids. Right. Kenneth turns into an open field in the middle of nowhere. He opens the trunk and says, quote, I want the young lady out, end quote. Hmm. And he yanks her out by the arm. He gets her out of the trunk and he tells Roy Dale to lock Louise in the trunk of his car, the Dodge. And he does it. But still in the trunk of the 1957 Ford are Robert and Mark, both on their knees, both begging for their lives. Mm. Kenneth shoots them both. He shot Robert Brand twice in the face and Mark Dunham three times in the face. Then he lifted him up again by his hair, shooting him one more time. Wow. Now, Roy Dale is shocked. Like, he cannot believe what's happening. But he sees the look on Kenneth's face. It was pride, like, yo, check it out. Look what I did. What do you think of that, Roy Dale? Wow. They couldn't get the trunk of the Ford to close again. So they backed up the car with the bodies in the open trunk against a fence. Now, obviously, the boys are dead. But Louise is still in the trunk of Kenneth's Dodge Charger. They drive off into Johnson County and stop on a dirt road 11 miles from the field where the dead boys are in the trunk. Kenneth got Louise out of the trunk, made her strip, and then threw her in the backseat of his car and raped her Hmm. twice. Uh. Then he made Roy Dale rape her too. And after, Kenneth raped her one more time. Hmm. Louise is raped four times. Now, another source states that the rapes actually occur in a nearby field. It doesn't matter. It's what they're doing to Louise that matters. Mm. Kenneth drives them to yet another location, a rural gravel road. He gets Louise out of the car and tells her to sit down on the road. He tries to strangle her with a belt, but it's not working. And he tells Roy Dale to get him something else. And Roy Dale grabbed a broken broomstick that happened to be in the car And Kenneth forces Louise's head down to the ground, and he presses this three-foot-long broomstick handle into her windpipe. 
He's choking her. She's struggling. She's fighting him. And he tells Roy Dale to hold down her legs. So after he rapes her and murders her and chokes the life out of Louise, once she's dead, he throws her body over a fence into some bushes and heads home. But not before stopping to bury the boys' wallets that he took from them and to get rid of their own bloody underwear Mm. and to wash the Dodge Charger. Wow. Now, Kenneth is so proud of himself and Roy Dale is in shock. So I've read. But he did rape Louise, too. Yeah. Now, the next day, Roy Dale is in a car with some friends taking a Sunday ride when news of the murders is on the radio. And with that, Roy Dale spills his guts. Really? He's telling his friends what happened the night before. Wow. And news travels fast in Texas. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. So when Falls County Sheriff Brady Pamplin comes to arrest Kenneth, he takes off in his car. He gets in his Dodge Charger and takes off. And the sheriff goes after him. And ends up shooting out his tires to stop him. Okay. As Tarrant County Sheriff Lon Evans is taking Roy Dale and Kenneth back to Fort Worth on April 7th, Kenneth makes a comment about Charles Whitman. Okay. Charles Whitman is the guy who was the sniper in the University of Texas up at the tower. And it had happened just a week before. Wow. And they're talking about this, and Kenneth starts talking, and he says, quote, that guy must have been crazy, end quote. <laughs> Pot, meat yeah. kettle. Yeah. Gee whiz. Yeah. Wow. Kenneth and Roy Dale were jailed in Tarrant County and charged with murder. Mm. Kenneth denied any knowledge of the crimes and refused to answer questions. On the other hand, Roy Dale Greed had a lot on his mind. He was singing like a canary. I was going to say, Roy was ready to tell the whole truth. He was. Quote, my God, I've got to tell somebody about it. Wow. I keep seeing it. I keep hearing those boys moan, end quote. Wow. Kenneth Allen McDuff was the first of the duo to go to trial pleading... Not guilty of course. to murdering Robert Brand. The state sought the death penalty. And testimony began November 9th. Roy Dale Green, of course, was the state's star witness mm-hmm. against Kenneth. Mm-hmm. Roy Dale was on the stand five hours on the first day of testimony. He's basically whispering in court on the witness stand when he tells the courtroom how Kenneth shot the two teenage boys and raped and killed Louise. Wow. Roy Dale admits that he, too, raped Louise, but he said he did it because he feared Kenneth was going to kill him, too, if he didn't follow orders. Well, I was going to say that earlier. I I wonder how afraid he was of Kenneth at the time. But, yeah, he learned that in prison, that he's he wants to be around people that under him that will listen to him and follow his orders, sure, right? Sure, He's the general. Yeah. He just wants soldiers. Yeah, and I'm not giving Roy Dale uh, any, you know— credit here. No. <laughs> I'm not defending him. But, no. But yeah, I'm sure he was afraid of him. Guy's a maniac. Yeah. Every, well, remember, the whole town's afraid. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So his mom, Addie the Enabler, into the rescue, she hires Kenneth, an attorney from Waco, Texas. She sits in the courtroom with Kenneth's sisters throughout the entire trial. Kenneth says he's innocent and that Roy Dale must have been the killer <laughs> and was trying to pin it on him. Yeah. He takes the stand and denies it all, saying that Roy Dale alone committed the crimes after borrowing the Dodge Charger. (laughs) Also, Kenneth says that Falls County Sheriff Brady Pamplin had it out for him. He's had it out for me for years, and I'm being framed for goodness sake. That's what he was telling everybody in the jury. He hates me. I'm being framed. I'm the victim here. Of course he's the victim. (laughs) Wah. Sorry. Yeah. Meanwhile, during breaks, Addie the Enabler is talking to reporters. She's telling them that Kenneth was with a girl from church that night when Robert, Mark, and Louise are murdered. And that he was such a good man. (laughs) He was willing to risk death in the electric chair to spare this poor girl's reputation. Whatever. Quote, I think she's studying to be a missionary, end quote. Oh, man. But Kenneth didn't want to reveal her name. Quote, he's too good. 
for his own good, end quote. Oh, mama. Addie, honey. Yeah. Yeah. The jury didn't see it that way, and Kenneth was convicted of the three murders on October 9th, 1968, and sentenced to the electric chair. Yes. Roy Dale Green received five years for his part in the murders. He was released from prison in Huntsville in 1979 and went back to Marlin, Texas. In 1980, he was committed to the Rusk State Hospital after threatening his mother. Roy Dale never really recovered from that night with Kenneth. I can imagine. Meanwhile, Kenneth is sitting on death row. And twice in 1969 and again in 1970, Kenneth was within days of his execution. But each time he's granted a stay. Then two years later in 1972, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down the death penalty and Kenneth's sentence was reduced to life in prison. Kenneth was transferred to the Ramsey unit and assigned to work in the fields, which is where all the prison officials put the inmates who need the tightest supervision, which made me think of... 48 hours. 48 hours, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, where they're out working in the field. Yeah. And I thought, that wasn't the tightest supervision in 48 hours. Yeah. Excuse me, sir. You got some water from my truck? (laughs) That's really good, honey. Very good. So he's, Kenneth is highly dangerous. He's extremely dangerous and a high escape risk, according to the prison officials. In 1977, Addie McDuff hires a new attorney, and the Kenneth McDuff story took on the trappings of Hollywood. Yeah. It was a Hollywood melodrama. That's what one source called it. Wow. A Dallas attorney named Gary Jackson began a long and costly effort to prove that Kenneth had been framed and that the true killer was his evil running mate, Roy Dale Green. (laughs) Over the next decade, Kenneth McDuff became more than just a client to this Jackson guy. He became an industry. They incorporated in 1989 under the name of Justice for McDuff. Inc. Wow. You can't make that up. Only a lawyer. (laughs) So he goes through all the trial records and newspaper accounts, and he's crossing the country. He's interviewing all these witnesses. Gary Jackson devises this new scenario for the events of August 6, 1966. And in a 26-page, single-spaced letter written to the chairman of the Board of Pardons and Paroles in 1979, he presents dramatic evidence. Dramatic new evidence. Okay. At the trial 13 years before, Kenneth testified that on the night of the killings, he handed over the keys to his new Dodge Charger so Green could go on a date. Hmm. In the revised version, Gary Jackson claimed that Roy Dale Green needed the car to pull a robbery. The implication being that Kenneth wanted no part of the robbery but had no objection to loaning his car to Green. Okay. And in both versions, Kenneth had waited for Green in a burned-out shopping center in Everman, napping while Green satisfied his, quote, lust for murder. The problem here is, how could Green have been driving both the Dodge and the Ford? Right, right. Yeah. So to get around this impossibility, the lawyer developed a theory in which Green rendezvoused with the teenagers, whom he had met earlier in the evening, to do some, quote, underage drinking, end quote, in the field where the boys' bodies were later discovered. Then when he ran out of beer, Green and his new friends left the Dodge in the field and took the Ford to buy more, which they consumed at the second location, the spot in Johnson County where Louise Sullivan's body is found. There he proceeds to rape Louise Sullivan. And while he's occupied, the boys force open the trunk, realizing that they're going to die. Gary Jackson wrote that Green, quote, jumps out of the car and without thinking shoots the boys using all six shells in the pistol, end quote. Mm. And the six shots were a nice dramatic touch because it meant that Green was out of bullets and had no choice except to strangle Louise Sullivan with a broomstick. Yeah, this lawyer, he doesn't need to be a lawyer. He needs to move to Hollywood and start writing screenplays. <laughs> Let's write a screenplay. I mean, come on. He leaves her body there. He returns to the Ford with the two dead boys in the trunk. He goes to the first location where he picks up the Dodge and heads for the shopping center where Kenneth has been waiting for him. And this scenario had the added advantage of placing all three murders in Johnson County 
out of the jurisdiction of the judge and the jury that found Kenneth guilty in the first place. Mm. This is a mastermind of a plan. Yeah, I got to give that lawyer credit. Yeah. that's, That's pretty good. So Kenneth and this attorney are thinking, this dude's lucky. He's He's been so lucky. He's escaped the chair three times while sitting on death row. Mm-hmm. And if he's up for parole, we're going for it. Right. He's up for parole twice, but is lacking one vote. In 1981, he's up for parole again, and he offers a $10,000 bribe to a member of the parole board. Wow. He's caught and convicted of bribery, and two years are added to his sentence. <laughs> Then in 1985, Kenneth gets a visitor, a young woman. Remember how Kenneth told his brother Lonnie that he'd raped and killed a woman in 1964? Right. Well, he raped her and he left her for dead, but she not only survived, she had his child. Whoa. It's 1985 and his daughter Teresa is now 21. It was only later in life that she learned that Kenneth McDuff was her father. Oh, my God. Yeah. (laughs) This gets crazier and crazier. Quote, it was a touching father-daughter meeting. (laughs) Kenneth tried to persuade her to smuggle drugs, and he would later offer to take her to Las Vegas to be her pimp. End quote. He's winning father of the year with flying colors, this one. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah. Can you imagine? You find out you have a child. She comes to visit you in prison. Can you get some drugs in for me? <laughs> and by the way. Yeah. Oh, wow. By 1989, Kenneth has been in prison for 20 years. And Texas has a problem. The prisons are overcrowded. So to take care of this problem, the state starts paroling mm. 750 inmates a week, approving 80% of all parole applications. Wow. 36,000 inmates were paroled in 1989 alone in Texas. Wow. And there were some clues as to who and how the inmates were being released. And Kenneth became a master pupil at figuring out what those things were. Mm -hmm. This parole board looked favorably on inmates who tried to better themselves. So Kenneth, with an eighth grade education, enrolled in correspondence courses. If there was a shift in policy or a subtle trend among the parole board members, Kenneth was the one who first figured it out. The procedure for considering which inmates deserve parole was and is for one of the three members of the parole team to interview a batch of inmates. It's usually like 15 or 20 of them in a single day. And they do this as they become eligible. And then they just vote yes or no on each one. And then they pass the files to the second member. And most of the time, the members don't even bother to discuss these cases with each other. And even though he's brutally murdered three people and he's tried to bribe someone on the parole board, the parole board saw him as a good risk Uh. for release. In 1984 and 85, he was only one vote shy of gaining his freedom. In 1988, he's approved, but it's rescinded. Then in 1989, the parole board saw fit to return Kenneth McDuff to society. And October 11th, 1989, a convicted rapist, triple murderer, and former death row inmate who was guilty of trying to bribe a parole officer is set free. Unbelievable. They cut him loose. Wow. They gave him his walking papers. That's just crazy. And you've got to be thinking, why? Why? Yeah. How? And I think he slipped through the cracks. These parole boards were looking at a thousand files of inmates every five working days. Yeah. And by this time, he'd come up so many times before his name is familiar. Sure. And they didn't even interview him the last time. Mm. Yeah. Jeez. So he has walked his ass out of prison. (laughs) Big mistake. Yeah. Big, big, Big. huge. (laughs) (laughs) On the day Kenneth is released from prison and told to report to his parole officer in Temple, Texas, where his parents are now living, Sheriff Larry Pamplin, the guy who Kenneth said had it out for him, made a prediction. Quote, I don't know if it'll be next week or next month or next year, but one of these days, dead girls are going to start turning up. And when that happens, the man you need to look for is Kenneth McDuff. End quote. Exactly. Yeah. So 21 years after he's supposed to die in the electric chair for murdering these three teens, he's back on the streets of Rosebud, Texas. 
And people stopped walking the streets yeah. and started triple locking their doors. Jeez. People were afraid of Kenneth McDuff. At festival days in the Falls County seat of Marlin, word spread that McDuff had sworn to show up and kill one person for every day he had spent in prison. Wow. Little Tommy Salmon, the eighth grader who humiliated him on the playground. Yeah. He's worried about his teenage kids. Yeah. And Roy Dale Green. Yeah. Well, he pushed the button on his telephone answering machine and was greeted with the sound <laughs> of three gunshots. Wow. Now, in an effort to appease his parole officer, Kenneth started working at a gas station. I think he made $4 an hour. Okay. And he signed up for classes at a technical college. But he only is going through the motions. He's only going through the motions. Right. None of it really means anything to him. Sure. Within a week of Kenneth walking out of the doors of prison, the naked body of 29-year-old Serafia Moneta Parker is discovered in a field of weeds in Southeast Temple, mm -hmm. beaten and strangled. Wow. Serafia was born on July 17, 1960. Witnesses came forward to say that they had seen her with Kenneth shortly before she went missing. And even though he was a person of interest, there was nothing to link him to her murder. There's no real evidence. Right. But not long after Serafia's murder, Kenneth is picked up on a parole violation after threatening to kill a man during a verbal altercation, during a shouting match. I'm going to kill you. Right, right. Thanks to his temper, he sent back to prison for a year before being released again. It's just uh, mind-boggling. Now, after this, Kenneth moves around a lot, but always sticking close to his mom or one of his sisters, wherever they're living. Right. He's not working, but he's always driving a brand new car. He's always spending money. And I read that he also liked to rob crack dealers. Yeah, everybody's got to have a hobby. I everybody's got to have a profession. Yeah. In the spring of 1991, Kenneth enrolled in Texas State Technical College in Waco and moved into a dorm Ugh. on campus. Wow, talk about the fox being in the hen house. Starting then and in the months that followed, several Waco area sex workers were reported missing. Mm. He seemed to be living this charmed life. He beat up and nearly blinded a fellow student at school and threatened several others. Nobody reported him to the police. Mm. Yeah, he was this student by day and a drug-crazed prowler by night. Yeah. And nobody's asking the questions. Wow. Nobody's looking at him. Are they just afraid of him? Is that I why think, they're not reporting him? I, I mean, think they're afraid of him, yes. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like they don't really have any evidence. Sure. Other than he's just an asshole. Right. September 21st, 1991, Cynthia Renee Gonzalez, age 23, was found dead in a creek bed near County Road 313 in a heavily wooded area just a mile west of I-35, six days after she's reported missing in Arlington. Okay. Kenneth is never going to be charged in this murder, but there are lots of people who think that he killed Cynthia. Although she wasn't strangled, she died of a gunshot wound. Mm. Cynthia was the owner of Beauty and the Beast Entertainment, and she was on her way to deliver a, quote, stripogram, oh, end quote. Okay. She told friends she was going to deliver the stripogram somewhere near the University of Texas at Arlington, and she usually took with her an escort for safety. But the call came in on short notice, and she went by herself. Mm. There was no record of who asked for her service that day, who she was going to see. Wow. On October 10th, 1991... Kenneth abducts a sex worker named Brenda Thompson in Waco. He drives away with her looking for a secluded spot and drives straight into a police checkpoint. Oopsie. Yeah. Brenda's all tied up. Ooh. And Kenneth stops about 50 feet from the roadblock and an officer starts walking toward his truck and Brenda starts kicking out the windshield. Wow. So Kenneth takes off driving straight through the roadblock and this, all the officers are like scattering yeah. because they're trying not to get hit. They're scrambling to get out of the way. Sure. They go after him, but he turns off his headlights and drives the wrong way down a one-way street. He loses them. Then he turns onto a dirt road where he just unleashes on Brenda. Yeah. He brutally beats her and then he rapes her before he basically tortured her mm. to death. Jeez. So now he's got a taste for, like, killing again. And less than a week later, he picks up another sex worker, 
17-year-old Regenia Deanne Moore. Now, these two are seen having an argument at a Waco motel, but she gets into his car willingly. Then he drives her to a remote location where he tied her arms and legs with stockings before raping and strangling her to death. It will be seven years before anybody finds her remains. Unbelievable. Two months after this, on December 29th, 1991, Kenneth sees a woman washing her car at an all-night car wash while he's out cruising with his new friend, Alva Hank Worley. Okay. It's 28-year-old Colleen Reed. Colleen is an accountant. She started her day by volunteering at the Lower Colorado River Authority, where she also worked. She attended mass and then ate lunch with her boyfriend, Oliver Guerrera. Colleen didn't feel well. She went home, took a nap, and then when she woke up, she slipped on her pink and ivory plaid jacket and went out to run some errands. She deposited money in the bank, and she went grocery shopping before visiting the car wash on the 1500 block of West 5th Street around 9 p.m. that night. Okay. Kenneth sees her as she's cleaning out her car. So it's one of the car washes with the bays, right. and you're just washing your own car. Right. And he sees her, she's cleaning out her car, and he decides... He needs to have her. Hmm. So in full view of more than a half a dozen people, he grabs her and shoves her in his car. And that's when witnesses actually heard her scream. Wow. Over the next couple of hours, Kenneth and Alva take turns raping Colleen in the backseat of the car. Hmm. They also burned her body with cigarettes. When they were finished, Kenneth strangled her. The Austin Police Department found her new white Mazda Miata convertible still sudsy, her purse and receipts from her errands for the day still in the front seat of the car. It was like she'd vanished. He just grabbed her and went off. But people saw her. Like six people, like half a dozen people saw her. Wow. Colleen was beautiful. She grew up in Louisiana in a very small town. She had brown eyes, brown hair. Friends and family said that she was warm, loving, gregarious, and she was a little bit of a tomboy. She loved nature, animals, and the environment. She also graduated from LSU. After starting college at the age of 16, she graduated high school early. Wow. So just an all-around beautiful person, right? Yeah. yeah. February 1992. Valencia Joshua is a sex worker with a drug addiction. Now, by now, Kenneth has added drug dealing to his resume. Yeah, I'm sure. So Valencia comes to his student housing looking to trade sex for drugs. Valencia was born on November 28th in Lubbock, Texas. She didn't live through the encounter. She was only 22 years old. Hmm. Then a week before he was scheduled to take his final exams, remember, he's at school, yeah. Kenneth vanishes. He's gone. Huh. Sometime late on the evening of March 1st, 1992, he parked his tan Thunderbird at the New Road Inn just south of Waco and poof, off into the shadows he goes. Really? Yeah. Okay. This same night, less than a block away, 22-year-old Melissa Northup is kidnapped. Melissa was a young wife and mother who was pregnant with her third child. She's 21 years old, and she's working the midnight shift at a convenience store in Waco, the Quick Pack. Okay. This is a convenience store where Kenneth McDuff had once been employed. Mm. So he knows this location well. Sure. And he held this job just briefly because it's close to Texas State Technical Institute where he's going to school. Okay. And while he's working there, he's paired with a more senior employee. Aaron Northrup. Okay. It's Aaron's 22-year-old wife, Melissa, oh, no. that Kenneth takes. Wow. And he does this because when he was working with her, he, he had a thing for her. And he told lots of friends that he wanted to, quote, rob the store and take the girl who worked the night shift there, mm. end quote. Yeah. And he does. He also takes $250 from the cash register but lots of people came forward to say that they saw Kenneth hanging around the store on the day that Melissa was last seen. Her body was found weeks later, bound and floating in a gravel pit in Dallas County near the spot where Kenneth had left her car. Hmm. So he abducts her and takes her car. Sure. A few weeks after Melissa's disappearance, police discovered the naked and badly decomposed body of Valencia K. Joshua in a shallow grave in a wooded area on a golf course near campus. Okay. And of course, Kenneth has already disappeared, right? Right. 
And this sudden disappearance kind of catches the parole board and everybody else by surprise. Because Addie McDuff is so worried that she can't find her son that she filed a missing persons report. (laughs) Of course she did. Oh, Addie. And Sheriff Pamplin and U.S. Marshals from Waco are thinking... Kenneth McDuff is at it again, Mm -hmm. but they couldn't prove anything. And unless Kenneth committed a crime in Falls County, Texas, it's out of the jurisdiction of Sheriff Pamphlin. And the U.S. Marshals couldn't investigate unless he's a federal fugitive. Mm. So they tried to keep track of Kenneth because Kenneth is eventually going to slip up. Okay, He's a drug dealer, remember? Sure. And he sold drugs to an informant. (laughs) Two of them. Oh, man. So using this information provided by the two informants, Assistant U.S. Attorney Bill Johnson of Waco charged Kenneth McDuff with possession of firearms and distribution of drugs. Kenneth had unwittingly become a federal fugitive, Mm. which was all the U.S. Marshals needed to get on his trail. The U.S. Marshals Service had something called, Rob's going to love this, Operation Gunsmoke. (laughs) Nice. It's a nationwide effort to target violent offenders and get them off the streets. Cool. It's March of 1992, and Kenneth McDuff is now being chased by Gunsmoke. Nice. Now, lots of Kenneth's ex-convict friends (laughs) lived in Temple and nearby towns. Should we put quotations around friends? Yeah, right? (laughs) But that's where the task force is focused because they're thinking he's going to show, he's going to need help. He's going to show up for help with one of his friends. Right. But what they were really shocked to find out about was Teresa, his daughter. And she tells authorities that she visited her dad in prison because she had become fascinated by him. He tried to persuade her to smuggle drugs. And after he was paroled, offered to take her to Vegas and be her pimp. (laughs) She also says, you know, that $10,000 bribe that he got in trouble for? Well, the family actually paid 25K to another parole board member in the spring to get him out that final time. Oh, my God. Wow. And this was something that led to an internal investigation into the parole board in Texas. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But after Teresa provides this information, she moves as far away as she can from her biological father. Yeah. Yeah. Smart move. She's done with him. Yeah, smart move. But authorities and U.S. Marshals are having a hard time getting information. The first big break came when they cornered one of Kenneth's friends in a parking lot in Temple. After some gentle persuasion, he told them about a woman drug dealer in Harker Heights, who in turn directed them to a guy in Dallas who said he'd spent Christmas Day with Kenneth in Austin. (laughs) My brother's wife's dog's neighbor's kid's sister's bird. Yes. Jeez. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Okay, go ahead. But this is important because it it means that Kenneth was in Austin five days before 28-year-old Colleen Reed was abducted from a car wash west of downtown. Mm. And witnesses reported that two men were in the tan car with rounded taillights, which is a good description of Kenneth's Thunderbird. Yeah, his T-Bird. Yeah, and so they're saying there were two guys there when Colleen was grabbed and they sped off going the wrong way on West 5th Street. Right. And they're thinking, well, wait a minute. That's what he does when he's pursued. He goes the wrong way. Yeah. It's Kenneth. Yeah. Yeah. It's his trademark. Sure. And the Austin police were under enormous public pressure to solve Colleen Reed's case. I'm sure. Sure. Yeah. But they had dismissed Kenneth McDuff as a suspect because, according to their sources, he hadn't been seen in Austin since October. So now they start going through all of Kenneth's buddies looking for someone to fit the description of the other guy who was at the car wash, and they stopped at the name of Alva Hank Worley. Mm, He was a 34-year-old concrete worker who hung out with Kenneth, and he fit the description pretty well. But more than that, he was the kind of weak, you know, weak-hearted guy. He was sort of, he wasn't even a good Robin to the Batman. He was just, (laughs) you know, he was a minion. Yeah. Something that Kenneth liked to have around. Sure. And they thought, This guy's the new Roy Dale Green. Yeah. Now, when they track down Alva, he tells them, I I don't know Kenneth McDuff. And the marshals are thinking, well, this is a big old fat lie. Right. But over the next two weeks, they start watching him at all these weird hours. And they're always taking him by surprise. You know, hey, Alva, what's up? You seen your buddy? What's going on? Right. Then finally, they catch him one day while he's barbecuing and he's drinking beer with some friends 
and he's got a daughter. His little girl is there. And the marshals walk up and say, quote, Hank, you're hiding a kid killer. You know that? You're protecting a man who raped and brutalized and strangled a girl not much older than your daughter right over there. Mm. Picture her on the ground, a broomstick across her throat, crying out for you to help, begging for you to speak out, to do what's right, to save the life of some other young girl, end quote. Wow. And it's about this time Alva breaks. Oh, really? Yep. Okay. He tells the marshals, that for days after Christmas, he rode with Kenneth into Austin to look for drugs. Wow. They would cruise the university area and scout out the bars on 6th Street. Then they'd cross Lamar and turn south on a side street to double back in the direction they'd come. And that's when Kenneth spotted Colleen. Mm. She's washing her Mazda and one of the bays at the car wash on 5th Avenue. Right. So he tells them. Kenneth parked his Thunderbird in the adjacent bay, disappeared for a little bit. And when he came back, he had this girl. He was holding her by the throat. Mm. He's holding her up so high that only her toes are touching the cement. She begged, quote, please, not me, not me, end quote. Oh, man. Kenneth threw her in the back seat and put Alva back there to control her. Then just a few miles out of Austin, Kenneth pulls over and changes places with Alva. And while Alva drives along I-35, Kenneth strips Colleen Reed naked, stubs out a cigarette between her legs, Mm. and begins raping her. Then while Kenneth drove, Alva switched places, noticing that her hands were tied behind her back. And while Kenneth is driving, Alva takes off his own clothes and forces her to perform oral sex. Then he raped her. Then north of Belton, Texas, Kenneth turned off the interstate onto Texas Highway 317, really close to the house of where his parents lived. He stopped on a narrow dirt road and raped Colleen once more. (laughs) When she stumbled to her feet, Colleen put her head on Alva's shoulder and said, quote, please don't let him hurt me anymore, end quote. Wow. Then Kenneth grabbed her by the back of the neck, shoved her into the trunk of the Thunderbird and slammed it shut. When Kenneth dropped Alva off that night, he said, what are you going to do with this girl? And Kenneth replied, quote, I'm going to use her up, end quote. And Alva knew that meant he was going to kill her. So the U.S. Marshals released Alva's statement and the story to the media. And the task force now had national attention. Mm -hmm. And on May 1st, America's Most Wanted featured the search for... Kenneth McDuff. Really? Generating 50 tips. Wow. By this time, Kenneth is living in Kansas City, Missouri, and he had changed his name to Richard Fowler, taking a job as a trash collector for the city. (laughs) And he might have gone undetected forever had his story not been on America's Most Wanted, where John Walsh featured the case. Love John Walsh. Yeah. After it airs three days later in Kansas City, Missouri, police receive a phone call from a viewer, Gary Smithy, a guy who worked with a man named Richard Fowler. And he suddenly realizes when he sees these pictures that the womanizing garbage truck worker known as Fowler was, in fact, a killer from Texas named Kenneth McDuff. Right. Wow. Police in Kansas City do a background check on Richard Fowler and discover that he was in their fingerprint database. He's been picked up for soliciting a sex worker. Go figure. Yeah, exactly. And when they compared his prints to those of Kenneth McDuff, they are a perfect match. There you go. So just a few hours later at the city dump, Kenneth McDuff surrendered without a struggle. (laughs) You know, it's interesting to me that um, these guys are so rough and tumble. And when they're caught, it's just like, eh, okay. Whatever. Whatever. Yeah. Well, I'm sure they've got to be exhausted after a while. So he left everything behind. Yeah. And this is a guy who always had pocket money yeah. and a new car. And now he's picking up trash in Kansas City, Missouri. Yeah. Yeah. He got nothing else. You got it right. You yeah. got it straight, mister. Yep. Kenneth McDuff was charged in the murder of Melissa Northrup, murder in the first degree. In July of 1992, the jury found him guilty. And at the end of the penalty phase, which lasted seven months, he received again... A death sentence. Mm. But they're not convinced that this would keep him in prison and on death row. Yeah. So as a safeguard, 
Kenneth was also tried and convicted of murder in the first degree of Colleen Reed. Mm. And when he realized there's nowhere to run, Kenneth McDuff told authorities, I'll tell you where Colleen's body is buried. Wow. Because they still didn't know. Right. On November 17th, 1998, Kenneth Allen McDuff's life came full circle. He was escorted to the execution chamber after his final meal, where he asked for steak and was served hamburger in the shape of a steak. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) That made me laugh. I never really give any of the final meals, even though I usually see them. Because I don't want to give these people that much credit. Who cares what they had? But that there is funny. That that there (laughs) is funny, honey. I don't care who you are. (laughs) (laughs) So while we're laughing, he was strapped to a gurney for his lethal injection. Wow. And when they asked if he had any last words, his response was short and to the point, quote, I'm ready to be released. Release me, end quote. Wow. Twelve minutes later, he's pronounced dead at 6.26 p.m. His execution took eight minutes. Mm. I hope they were just eight minutes of excruciating pain. Yeah, I know. Brenda Solomon, mother of Melissa Northrup, said, quote, I feel wonderful. I know where he was released <laughs> to, end quote. Yep. One of the best quotes I've ever heard. Yeah. Yeah. Kenneth, ask and you shall receive. That's it. Kenneth's remains are buried in the prison cemetery in Huntsville beneath a simple marker and an X signifying that he had been executed, hmm. that the execution had been carried out. I didn't realize that when you're buried in a prison cemetery, that if you have an X, it says that you've been executed. Yeah, I didn't know that either. Yeah. Marker 999055. It should have been 666. (laughs) He's in Captain Joe Bird Cemetery, which is also called Peckerwood Hill. (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah. So for as much as his mother and his sisters loved him and adored him and thought he was godlike, you know, how they protected him. Sure. In the end... They did not claim his body. Wow. Yeah. And I read where his father said from the beginning when he was getting picked up that if the police said he did it, he probably did. So it was really only his mother who kept propping him up. Yeah. She was in complete denial. Now, law enforcement officials estimate that Kenneth killed, after he'd been paroled for the three murders in 1996, between nine and 14 women. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Thanks, parole board. After Kenneth's second arrest for murder in 1992, Texas toughened its parole laws, (laughs) making it more difficult for violent criminals to be paroled and subjecting them to increased monitoring upon parole. Those laws are now known informally as McDuff laws. Oh, really? They are. Wow. So one good thing came out of it. Yeah. But that is the story of Kenneth McDuff. And that's all I have to say about that. Hey, Hitch to Homicide listeners, the wait is over. If you're a reader or a fan of my Sex and Lies series, Book 10, Sex, Lies, and Rock and Roll is now available on Amazon. With a successful tour and two years of sobriety under his belt, rock star Noah Hart is ready to put his secrets and the past behind him. That is, until his former bandmates and business partners are murdered one by one, and suddenly he becomes the prime suspect. When FBI agent Louisa Hathaway is assigned to the case, no one, including her partner, is aware she carries her own secrets, including an undeniable infatuation with rock and roll's bad boy, Noah Hart. As the body count rises, Agent Hathaway is torn between unraveling the truth and falling for the man who might be the killer. Don't miss this new book, Sex, Lies, and Rock and Roll, by me, Chris Calvert. Only on Amazon. Rock and roll will never die, but it might kill you. That guy was truly the only word I can think of, an animal. He was just an animal. I know. Well, I mean, they call him the broomstick killer. I'm like, he's just evil personified. He's just a horrible Horrible person, yeah. just a, an evil man. And they still don't really know how many murders are actually his. And you know what? I was thinking too, I hope the person that took the bribe, the $25,000 bribe, yeah. I hope that they they burn in hell too. <laughs> they're down there roasted marshmallows with him. <laughs> yeah. I mean, come on. You're, yeah. you're as, you're complicit. 
I don't know that they ever actually found that person, but I know that they they launched a huge investigation into it. Yeah. Well. Okay. Well, let's move on from that and just let's lighten it up just a little bit. Aight. With a little bless your heart. Well, bless your heart. All right. Number one, I'm calling doggone it. Doggone it. A British man was sentenced to eight months in jail after biting a police dog. Wait, the man bit the dog? (laughs) Yes. Okay. The incident occurred when police were trying to arrest Matthew Bolter, he was 34, after locals complained of him assaulting three people in the area, according to Humberside Police, Bolter from Grinsby. I love all these names. Yeah, I don't know where Grinsby is, but anyway... He was unwilling to go into custody without a fight, punching and kicking an officer. When a police dog was sent in to assist in the arrest, the man grabbed and bit <gasps> the dog on the head. On the he- on the top of the head? Yep. Like where the puppy kisses go? Yep, yep. Uh-oh. Quote, assaulting emergency service workers is not acceptable, and our police dog provide vital assistance to us. They are part of the police family, Detective Sergeant Thomas Crossville of Humberside Police said. Did he bite him back? <laughs> the beloved police dog, Xander, luckily only sustained minor injuries. Okay. Yeah. Thankfully, PD Xander quickly made a full recovery and was back at work the next day, Crossville said. Oh, good. He's yeah. a good boy. That's a good boy. Here's the thing. Xander was previously nominated for the National Police Bravery Award in 2021 for his role in apprehending an armed criminal, according to The Telegraph. The latest incident could see the canine nominated once again. Aw, what a good boy. I know. Police said Voltaire pled guilty to six offenses causing unnecessary suffering to an animal, assaulting an emergency service worker, assault, criminal damages, and two counts of battery. Don't mess with the dogs. Yeah, you can do anything else, but don't mess with the dogs. (laughs) People, don't touch the dogs. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Number two, happy birthday, or should I say happy jail day. Oh, okay. The Marine Drug Enforcement Agency seized four pounds of cocaine worth about $200,000 on the street from a New York man and Maine woman earlier this week. The drug was mixed with coffee grounds to look like a marble cake and in an attempt to mask the scent from canine units, authorities said. Yeah, that's one of the things they use are coffee grounds. Yep. Vinegar is another. I probably shouldn't have said that. I'm like helping out drug dealers. <laughs> I'm sure they know. <laughs> Quote, agents believe the drugs were being transported into the state for redistribution throughout Kennebec and Somerset counties, the agency said in a release posted on Facebook with a photo of the cocaine cake. Nice. Did it have frosting on top? I don't know. Rob loves watching that show. What's it called, honey? <laughs> to, to Catch a Smuggler. Catching a Smuggler. Yep. And like, they're guys who've got a, a, a whole guitar made out of cocaine. Yeah, he had a bass guitar that was basically, the guitar was cocaine. And the best part of it was they handed it to him and they said, play us a little something. And the guy looked like he was trying to mix cake or something. And Rob was laughing so hard. Uh, and of course, you know, the guards are like, he didn't look like he knew how to play the instrument. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, back to our story. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. John Cedeno, 25, who had the nickname Papers, was being investigated by the agency based on a tip that he was transporting considerable amounts of cocaine into Maine with Chelsea Cochran. Why is his name Papers? I have no idea. Authorities name. Yeah. Authorities pulled over Cochran's Audi on Interstate Highway 295. Cedeno, who had already done time on a 2015 heroin bust, allegedly had the cocaine and $1,900 in cash. Cedeno and Cochran were being held on drug trafficking charges at Kennebec County Jail. Cedeno's bail was set at $750,000 and Cochran at $50,000, police She's said. not worth as much as he is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, come on. She's got to up her game here a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. All right, number three, and finally, eh, not your average pool toy. It's not a pool noodle? Uh, <laughs> depends on how you look at it. Okay. A Florida man who returned home from a doctor's appointment got a surprise and an eyeful when he discovered a woman skinny dipping in his pool. Oh, was she floating on the pool noodle? I'm back to the pool noodle again. <laughs> he had a pool noodle. Close oh, my the- gosh. 
clothes strewn on his veranda <laughs> led the unidentified man to a 42-year-old Heather Kennedy who was swimming on natural in his backyard pool, according to a report from the Charlotte County Sheriff's Office. Okay. Quote, imagine returning home to find a naked woman swimming in your pool. And to top it off, she refuses to get out. The Sheriff's Office posted on a Facebook along with the report. Thank you, God. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's pretty appropriate. Yep. After police asked her several times, Kennedy got out of the pool and put her clothes on. Once Lady, she- get out of my pool. <laughs> get off my yard. Uh, once she was dressed, the officers tried to detain her, but she allegedly resisted. I don't know why, but anyway, police finally brought Kennedy to the Charlotte County Jail, where she refused to identify herself. Authorities eventually identified her using mugshots from prior arrest. I'm glad they used mugshots. She was charged with trespassing and resisting arrest. Police did not disclose if her bail had been posted. I wonder, um, is that like an... One of her things. I mean, how many other pools had she been swimming in? <laughs> She's a cereal pool She's swimmer. She's a, a cereal skinny dipper, and then she gets the heck fire out before everybody gets home. Yeah, and, you know, and then she went the wrong way down a one-way street. Without headlights. It's her trademark. It's her trademark. It's her trademark. Okay, whatever. <laughs> well, if you have a bless your heart or you know somebody's heart who needs blessing, yep. you can go to hitchtohomicide.com where there's a pull-down menu. Mm-hmm. And while you're there, you can also suggest a case. Please do. We're so glad you joined us again this week. That's my amazing husband out there. And that's my beautiful bride in the booth. Join us next time on Hitch to Homicide. Bye, y'all.